0: Good morning, everyone. Hello, hello, hello. Good morning. Peter, First Peter 4, 1 through 11. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensualities, passions, drunkenness, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keeping love one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves one another who serves by the strength that God supplies that in order, that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen.
1: All right. Thank you brothers. Appreciate that. If you don't if you're not already there, turn to 1 Peter 4. In the New Testament. I've in the back a little bit, a little ways. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful uh, that by your providence that you have gathered us all here together um, to uh, hear, uh, uh, hear the gospel. Um, that is why we are gathered, is to hear the gospel, to, um, to proclaim the gospel, to, to celebrate the gospel in song, um, to remind ourselves of the gospel truths um, from your word. And so I pray that you would you would do that now, that you would um, uh, give us ears to hear um, wonderful things from your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, I just got through reading an interesting book called A Non-Anxious Presence by uh, a pastor and author named Mark Sayers. And he describes where we are at as a... As a as a country, and I mean, he's, he's an Australian, so, so really as the world where we are currently at. And he describes it as uh, the gray zone. The gray zone. So the gray zone being this moment that, that, over, that is overlapping of two eras. So, so within it, you have the, you have the influence of, of a passing era that you're coming out of, but you're not quite out of it yet, and so you're you're kind of merging into the influence of the coming era. And this is what makes gray zones really confusing and and sometimes contradictory. And Sayers argues that we we are living now in 2022 in a gray zone, that we are in a time of significant and rapid worldwide change. And I agree with that. Specifically, over the last couple of years, we've seen significant change in our culture, almost in every sphere imaginable. And I know that based on my conversations with a lot of you, but you've seen this change in politics, you've seen it in technology, you've seen it in the culture at large, and in the global order. So Sayers makes the observation that that the pandemic in 2020 has operated as sort of this bridge between two eras because it caused the world to stop. It caused it to stop, and it gave people this chance, people who don't typically stop, and it gave us a chance to look around, think, and evaluate what was happening around us. So in in the midst of this gray zone is where we begin to navigate a really challenging environment, And it creates uh, within us one of two responses for the church. We can have anxiety along with everyone else in our world. Or this can drive us to spiritual growth. Because spiritual growth involves understanding that discomfort and pain, which we know from 1 Peter as suffering, are part of normal living and therefore can be used by God to grow us. And as I was reading this book, I couldn't help but think about the place Peter's readers find themselves. Because I think they too were sort of in this gray zone sort of era, era, era as well. They're they are moving from this life of conformity to the culture around them. Peter continually reminds them of that to a life filled with great joy, knowing that Jesus has accomplished according to what the Scriptures said He was going to accomplish. But at the same time, they're experiencing this joy, they're also living a life that is filled with suffering. And pain and danger have the tendency to reveal what we truly value, don't they? So when when suffering comes upon you, you are either going to embrace the suffering as something from God, and when you do that, you will grow, or you will run from the suffering and not grow. So some of you spend a good portion of your life running from suffering. We just sang about this in our second song, where we, we spend a good portion of our life running away from suffering or trying to get around it, or trying to organize our lives in a way that, that, we, that we won't experience it, or it won't be as bad. And so you run to your Instagram life, because on there it's perfect, right? There's no troubles or sorrows with everybody on Instagram. Or you run to other ways to cope, you, uh, through, through pornography, uh, or alcohol, or work, or exercise. Or you just default back to your old life. You become like the Israelites in the wilderness after being freed from slavery. If you remember this, God miraculously brings them out of slavery. In an impossible situation, brings over a million Jewish people out of slavery, parts the Red Sea, gives them food from the sky, and still the Israelites grumble and complain and start longing for the days of slavery once again because their reason at least the food was good. So instead of doing all of that, we need to be running towards Jesus. And now Peter is showing his readers how to avoid the costly mistake of falling back into their old ways and is helping them transition from one era before Christ to the next era that is with Christ. So he's being a good pastor is what he's doing. He knows that they need to understand what is true about them as Christians in order for them to live as stewards of God's grace. So he does this in three ways from our text this morning. And these will be our three points. One, he reminds them that they are united in Christ's suffering. Two, that they are severed from their old way of living. And then... Both of those bring on the third point, which is to live for the glory of God. So united in Christ's suffering, severed from your old way of living, to live for the glory of God. So first, united in Christ's suffering. Look at verse 1. Peter writes, Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So we must begin again with substitutionary, the substitutionary atonement of Christ because Peter reiterates here in verse 1, in summary fashion, what he just communicated in detail in, verses, uh, in chapter 3, verses 18-22 through 22, um, about this very thing, about the gospel, about what Christ has done. And so Peter argues in those verses that the suffering of Christ was the pathway to his victory, his exaltation, and our salvation and our victory. So we, have, we do not have salvation apart from the substitutionary atonement of Christ. So chapter 3, verse 18, Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And then, and then in verse 22, this is what is accomplished. Uh, Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. So Christ has, has won the victory over Satan, sin, and death for us so that He could bring us to God. He does the atoning work. There is no way to God apart from Christ. And so this truth... Uh, it, it frames the entire letter of 1 Peter. But this truth frames everything else Peter is about to say in the verses that Chase just read for us from chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. We know this based on the phrase that Peter gives right there at the beginning. So the ESV translated, translates it as since therefore. You could say therefore since. I like therefore since. Uh, but that he uses be, before he says, Christ suffered in the flesh. So this lets us know that, that, that what he is about to say is based on the truth and relevancy of the gospel message, not on anything else. So, therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, Peter says, in chapter 4, verse 1. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, believers then should also suffer in the flesh. So for as one living in this way indicates that they are, they are no longer letting sin have dominion over them. The, uh, if you have an ESV study Bible, um, this is one of the notes that, that, was in, that was on this particular verse, which I thought was really helpful. But it says, Peter's point is that when believers are willing to suffer, the nerve center of sin is severed in their lives. I like that language because it shows that we are now cut off from what used to enslave us. So that means suffering for the sake of Christ is the fruit of the gospel at work in a person's life. So it shows that their purpose in life now is not to live for their own pleasures, but according to the will of God, which in turn is for His glory. How does Peter now say that we should do this? Well, he says, arm yourselves with this way of thinking. What is he talking about? Well, he's pointing them again, back to the substitutionary uh, atonement of Christ. He's saying that the gospel changes everything, and that includes your very thinking about everything in life. Paul describes it this way in 1 Corinthians 10.5. He says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's what it means to arm yourselves with with this way of thinking, this gospel thinking, this gospel mindset, is that you take every thought captive to obey Christ. Ed Clowney, in his commentary on this, says, we are to arm ourselves with a thought that is decisive for our new manner of life. So every decision uh, demands, just about every decision, I mean, put whatever shoes you put, you don't have to pray about what shoes you want to put on in the morning, things like that, don't just assume that I mean like, you know, what, I'm, what I mean, big, bigger things. But, but, but what it means is that the, the decisions that we are making in, in life, Uh, should be determined about what we believe uh, as Christians. They should steer us in whatever direction it might be, in whatever work you are in. This doesn't just mean Kevin, as a pastor, is the only one who has to make Christian decisions every day. As a teacher, you have to do that. As someone who works on posts, you have to do that. In whatever job that you are in, you have to make decisions as a believer based upon the gospel. And the manner of life, this new manner of life that Ed Clowney uh, speaks to or is speaking about is suffering for the sake of the glory of God, just as Jesus did. So the Christian's thinking then, the way in which you should take every thought captive is according to the gospel, that Christ suffered and died so that he could bring you to God and has now made you into a new creation. So that means everything about you has changed, including your mind. So one way you can get your mind around this is to imagine a filter. This is how I always do it. Um, it, it every illustration falls apart at some way, but this is how I like to do it. But, but much like a, a gold miners uh, would use like the, the filters to kind of sift for gold in the, in the California rivers, that's how I kind of tend to imagine... Uh, it in my mind that I have this, this gospel filter that everything I watch, everything I read, everything uh, every question that comes to me or, or any kind of situation that comes to me, I am, I am sifting that in my mind with the gospel. And so this drives my, my family crazy because I don't always answer right away, but it's because I'm, I'm, I'm thinking through a particular situation. And that's what I'm doing in my mind is I'm sifting it. I'm examining it. I'm questioning it. I'm discerning what is good and what is not. What is helpful? What is not helpful? What brings God the most glory and what doesn't? Thinking. Taking every thought captive. So Peter is saying that Christians are to have the same sort of insight as Jesus did um, and the same insight that, that understands Christ's suffering. So because of this, the second half of verse 1 can now apply to us. So our saving by Jesus through His suffering brings glory glory to God. That That is ultimately why Christ died, was to bring God glory. And therefore now, our suffering with Jesus brings God glory. But the problem with this is, we don't like pain and suffering. We don't like to hurt. We don't like to experience those sorts of things. And I, I think I can speak for, the, for most of us, uh, because this includes me, when I say, we'll do whatever it takes to avoid suffering. But this isn't the way God calls the Christian to live his life or her life. Even, even if you're having like a good week or a good month or a good year, you can say, this, is like, this has been the best year of my life. Even when you're having those sorts of moments in your life, and you do have those more often than not, um, but even when you do, Jesus says that we should carry the burdens of others. That, that we should be mourning when others mourn. Essentially, taking on their suffering taking on their burdens as if they were our own. So we really can't, as, as the church, we really can't escape suffering. Because we should be knowing one another's burdens and helping them to kind of lift that load, to walk alongside of them. That's how we should be living as a church. Why? Well, to help your brother or sister in those particular situations, but... But ultimately, because suffering helps you to be like Christ. And as followers of Christ, we should be willing and prepared to do God's will and to suffer for it if necessary. So what is... He He says, they cease... From sin. So what this doesn't mean, before you get super excited about this and you go home and start beating yourself on the back with a whip or something like that, it doesn't mean that they've stopped sinning altogether. That's not what Peter means here. And we know this is true because of what Scripture says elsewhere. Okay? Scripture always interprets Scripture. Scripture always agrees with Scripture. Okay? So 1 John 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So, Peter must not be talking about us specifically, but rather the one who is without sin, and his name is Jesus. So as Peter reminds us in 3.18, uh, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he would bring us to God. Again, we cannot get to God apart from Jesus doing that work for us, bringing us to God Himself. So the result of that was that sin was done away with. Christ finished it. So the verbs that we have here in, in this verse for, for suffered and have, uh, has suffered have a form that describes a, a definite event, not an ongoing process. So the suffering was a definite event, a one-time uh, thing. So, so the phrase is, done with sin, describes a present condition determined by a past event. So, so this phrase that Christ suffered describes your new situation. That Christ suffered once for our sins, which brings us into a new situation, a new life. So because Jesus finished the work on the cross of dealing with sin, you, Christian, are now declared righteous. Automatically. Because your sin has been dealt with by Jesus. So because of this, Peter says, you are no longer to live for the will of human passions, but for the will of God. And God's will is that we live apart from sin. That you live severed from your old way of living. Which is the second way we're to live as stewards of God's grace. Look at verse 2. So as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So this is to live a life that is, that is severed, that is Cut off from your old life, which means you don't say, oh, "Well, I'm a Christian now." But every once in a while, when when something comes up, and um, you know, or I'm alone, I can kind of dip back into my old life. What it means to be a Christian is that you are severed completely from your old life. There's no dipping back into it. It means that we we, we no longer live the rest of our lives. Peter says, in the flesh for human passions. That is not our goal. It's just to make ourselves happy. But now we live for the will of God. Look at verse 3. Peter says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. The time past being the way that you used to live before Christ. Peter Peter has brought this up already in chapter 1, verse 14. He says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Of your former life. Where you lived ignorant of the grace of God. Don't live like that anymore. The time has passed. Peter is saying, you have spent enough of your life in wasteful living. And now the new life for the rest of your earthly life is before you and it is in Christ as a Christian. So let me just pause and say this because some of you may be thinking, well, it's too late for me. Maybe, maybe, um, maybe you're, you think you're too old. Uh, to come, you know, you're, it's too late to come to Christ because you're too old. Um, or or you've, I've, I've, you have no idea, Kevin, what I have done. And I just don't think, I just think it's too late. I, I am too far gone in my sin. There is no possible way that Jesus can save me now. And let me just tell you that it is never too late to begin to live this new life that only Christ can bring you. It's never too I don't care if you have 24 hours to live. The thief on the cross is a perfect example of that. He repents and believes on the cross, dies within minutes, it seems, and is in heaven with with Jesus. It is never too late to do that. So basically, when a person comes to Christ, to paraphrase the old expression, that is the first day of the rest of their life on earth, but that also carries on into eternity. That you will continue to glorify God into eternity with your life. So for the Christian, the moment you come to Christ, the rest of your life begins with this faith that unites you to Christ. And because this is true, Peter describes the vivid distinction that exists between the way you used to live and the way you live now, which tells us that there are only two ways to live this life. Only two. One is determined by the will of God, and the other is uh, determined, as Peter says, by the will of the Gentiles. Some of your translations might say, by the will of the pagans, which are those who do not believe in God. Those are your only two options. You are you are either living for the will of God or you are living for the will of this world. So those those living unto Christ will look at the life they once lived with with fear and revulsion. They will look back and say, I cannot believe that I lived that way. And and even more so, I cannot believe that Jesus would, would save me and forgive me for all of the wrongdoings that I have committed. And then those who live unto the world will look with scorn and contempt and those who live unto Christ. There may be some of those here in this room right now. Or as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15-16, through 16, speaking about Christians, uh, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, we are a fragrance from death to death, but to the other, we are a fragrance from life to life. So the old way has the stench of, of, of death to the Christian, and the new way has the aroma of Christ, the aroma of life. And Peter says when you live in this new way, it will be so counter-cultural to your old way of living that, that your friends and your family members and all the colleagues that you have around you who, who kind of knew you in that in that uh, part of your life, Peter says they will be surprised at your change of life. They will be surprised that you, are, that you are no longer, that your life no longer lines up with theirs. And as a result, you will suffer because of them. Look at verse 4. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So the Greek word for the, for the verb malign that we have there in English is where we actually get our English word for blasphemy. So simply put, Peter is saying, they will blaspheme against you because your life speaks against theirs. And ultimately what they're doing, they're not committing blasphemy towards you because blasphemy is what we do towards God. So ultimately, what these people who, who, who you once uh, ran with and did all sorts of debauchery and sin with will essentially blaspheme your God as they malign you. So in a fictional book um, called The Wisdom of Solomon, so it's not a biblical book, um, but it was written um, before the time of Christ, the author of this book cites, uh, kind of describes... Um, the words of the wicked against the good life of a righteous person. Just kind of describing it. So he says, quote, He professes to have knowledge of God and calls himself a child of the Lord. He became to us a reproof of our thoughts. The very sight of him is a burden to us because his manner of life is unlike that of others and his ways are strange. Does your life, this is to, the, to Christians in the room, does your life look strange to those around you that don't yet know Christ? Now, this does not include, you know, instigating arguments on social media by, you know, passive-aggressively kind of, pushing in on people or poking at someone just because you know you can get a rise and then you can declare, oh, I'm, I, yeah, I'm being a martyr for the faith here. I'm suffering for the sake of the gospel. No, you, you did that. You did that. You're not suffering for the sake of the gospel. You're suffering for the sake of your stupidity. So it's a big difference there. Nor am I saying that in order for this to be a proof of your you know, persecution or whatever it might be that, that, these, that these, uh, these old friends and family members... Um, are doing this to you? That you need to be, you know, uh, they need to be cursing you and dragging your name through the mud and and crucifying you, so to speak, or anything like that, uh, for for there to be evidence that your life is somehow strange and different from your old way. But when your colleagues, uh, your classmates, your friends, your family members who don't yet know Christ. Look at your life. Do they see something different? So listen to these words from an unknown author um, of the Epistle, uh, the epistle to Diagnetus. So this is written in uh, 130 AD and in a section titled The Mystery of the New People, which I love that. The Mystery of the New People. He writes, quote, They love all men and are persecuted by all. They they are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things, and yet abound in all. They are dishonored, and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. They are evil spoken of, and yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers when they do good. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners. They are persecuted by the Greeks, yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. And Peter says, this is how Christians live. And he goes on to say in verse 5 that even if you are maligned, those who do so will have to give an account to God. They don't have to give an account to you. They don't have to apologize to you or seek your forgiveness. But Peter says, pointing forward, on the last day, the day of judgment that will come, those who malign you, those who blaspheme against you, will give an account to God. And whether you believe in God or not, does not make this any less true. Verse 5. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So Peter calls on his readers essentially to persevere to the end, to be faithful to the end. Don't give in to the old way that you were living because that is fleeting. Is temporary, but look to that which will last, that which is eternal, which is, which is hope and life in the gospel. In verse 6, Peter further encourages the saints with these words. He says, For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Now, unless you have an NIV translation, a New International Version translation, the meaning of this verse will make more sense if you add the word, so you can just kind of like draw a line and maybe put it in your margin or whatever, but if you add the word now before the word dead in, that, in, that, in, your, in your Bible. Because what this verse does not mean is that people who did not believe the gospel while alive will somehow get a a second chance to believe the gospel when dead. That is not biblical. That is not something that will happen. So if you are not believing the gospel now, and you're thinking in your mind, well, I'll have an opportunity after I'm dead, whether it's purgatory or something something else that you might have heard of, you will not have that opportunity. It will not happen. So that's, that's, Peter is not talking about that, because some use this verse to say, look, we'll have a second chance when we're dead. That is not what Peter is talking about. So Peter, in this verse, is actually having his readers consider the case of believers who have died physically. Specifically speaking about those, those, uh, those of his readers who, pe- who they knew. So these were friends and, and brothers and sisters in Christ who have died since coming to faith in Christ. People who have believed the gospel while alive, but have subsequently died later. So this was to, to actually counter what unbelievers were saying because of these deaths of Christians. Because unbelievers viewed the death of believers as proof that there is no advantage in becoming a Christian. Because they would say, all oh, believer and unbeliever, all Without exception, we're all going to die. So let's eat, drink, and be merry while we still have the chance. Because what's the point of becoming a Christian if I'm going to die anyways? There's no advantage to this. There's no benefit to it. And this is where the second part of verse 6 comes into play. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. So what Peter is saying is actually an encouragement to his readers, by saying that even though you may be judged here on Earth, in the flesh, this is of no matter, because in the life to come, you will live in the spirit the way God does. So again, Peter is pointing them to, to their future resurrection, that, that is one for them in Christ on the cross and through his re- resurrection and the life that they will live with God in the new heavens and new earth one day. So Paul puts it like this in 1 Corinthians 4. Uh, and I know I read this last week but it's worth repeating because this is what Peter is getting at as well. Paul says, therefore we do not lose hearts though outwardly we are wasting away yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day for our lights and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, which is these broken uh, bodies, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, and what is unseen is eternal. And this mindset, of, of, of severing your, your, yourself away from your old life. This mindset allows us to live not to us, not to our glory, not to our joy, not to our happiness ultimately, but to live for the glory of God. Look at verses 7 through 11. Peter says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received the gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So Peter now makes this shift from a focus on relating to those outside the church. That's what he's been doing. I'm saying this is how we, as believers, is how we relate to the outside world. Now he's instructing believers how they should relate to one another inside the church. And so he begins with this kind of eschatological vision, this, this vision of the end times the end of all things at, is at hand, therefore, and then he goes on into his instruction. And the reason that he can say this confidently, that the end of all things is at hand, is because th- that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus have set in motion the last days. Peter, They were anticipating the last days sooner than later, but what Peter was ultimately saying was, because Jesus has come and fulfilled that prophecy, what the Scriptures have said would happen, and because He, he lived a life we could not, and died, died the death uh, that we deserve, and was resurrected, just as the Scriptures proclaimed it would, He would be, this is set in motion the last days. So we are in those last days now. And our eyes are focused on this, Peter says. The return of our King. And this is what drives how we are to live amongst each other as we look to the return of our King. Peter says first, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Be self-controlled and sober-minded. Meaning we, as believers, must live in a self-controlled and sober manner so that you can think sensibly about what is happening around you and not freak out. It tends to be the, the, the way in which people respond to anything, whether it's a presidential election or, or, or the implementation of some sort of policy or, or, or laws are changed or anything like that happens. Uh, the world around us tends to lose their minds. Whether it's through protests and riots or, or any sort of thing, they, they, they freak out. But Peter is saying these things are coming. You need, as a believer, as the church, to be self-controlled and sober-minded. And through that, instead of freaking out and getting anxious, turn to prayer. To pray. To pray about whatever is happening in the world, whatever is happening personally in your life that may cause you to freak out. Peter says to have your mind enough so that you can pray. The second action is to keep loving one another earnestly. So this phrase could also be translated as, keep love among you constant. It's ongoing. It, love, love among the believers should never stop. There should never be a moment where, where really that, that we could say, I feel really unloved here. It should be constant among you. It. It, should, it should just flow in and out of this place. We should always be, be, uh, feel loved. So the importance of this type of love amongst believers has, has already been emphasized by Peter in, in, in chapter 1, verse 22. He says almost the exact same thing. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So the reason Peter continues to highlight this is because love is central. Love is central in the Christian life. We cannot genuinely live the Christian life apart from love. Why? Well, because of the second half of this verse. Keep loving one another earnestly. Keep love constant among you. Why? Since love covers a multitude of sins. So what this means is that we are still, even though we've been, if you're a Christian, you have been saved by Jesus, you have been declared righteous, that stamp is upon you, but we still, and we all know, are affected by our own sinful condition. It continues to kind of rear its ugly head in our life. So that means that you are a sinner, and that all of your neighbors around you are sinners. And so if we, if, we, if we don't go into the mindset within, within your local church, if you don't have the mindset of love towards your brothers and sisters in Christ, you will have a really hard time uh, being part of a local church because you're going to be in there with a bunch of sinners. They're going to disappoint you. They're they're going to make you angry at times. They're going to frustrate you. They're going to to cancel uh, appointments with you. They're going to to ignore you at times. Uh, They're going to do things that hurt you. I, I do it too. I will disappoint you. I will make you mad. I will frustrate you. I will sin against you. But you'll do the same thing. So if we don't have the mindset of love that Peter is talking about here, the sins and offenses of others... We'll never overlook them. We'll never be able to love our brothers and sisters. So Peter is saying, when you love, but Peter is saying, when you love in this way, the sins and offenses of others, even towards you, are overlooked. Now, this does not mean that we, you know, we ignore the sins of others. That's not what we do. Uh, the Bible is very clear about that, is that we confess our sins to each other, but that we also confront each other in our sin. So if you see a brother or sister in Christ who is in sin, uh, you are called to go and confront them in love, in their sin. And as, a, as a, you know, the person who's sinning, uh, you are to receive that rebuke in love, and to thank them for it. So it's helpful to know that Peter's words here echo the words of Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12, that says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. So what Peter is getting at here is that, that love does cover all offenses, offenses of others, while those who are full of hatred use the sins of others as a means to attack them, to, to use it against them. To, to hold bitterness towards them, and then to take delight in exposing their sin. And I think we can all agree that we do those things. But that is not the way of love if you do that. And this sort of love that, that Peter calls us to it is kindled because we can't love like this on our own in our flesh as human beings. But this sort of love that Peter talks about is kindled by the sort of love that God has for us in Christ. We love because He first loved us, remember? Paul says this in Romans 5.8, God demonstrates His own love for, for us in this. And I love that Paul says that God demonstrates His love for us, that He had to show us um, how to love. This is how you love. While we were still sinners... Christ died for us. That's the demonstration of, 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 of God's love for us. And so in verses nine through 11, because we're still called to live that, we're still called to love that way, Peter describes what this genuine love looks like among us. So first, the first thing he says, and how do you, how do you, love, how do you love each other well? The first thing he says might be surprising to you. He says, to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And you're like, that's it? That's all I have to do is just like, you know, have somebody over for dinner? And I mean, honestly, yeah. Yeah, that is. That is exactly what Peter is saying. He's saying hospitality is a means in which you can love one another like this. A means in which you can... Because hospitality, if you do it once a year... You know, you have people over for Christmas, and you, that's it. But if you do it weekly, this is what I tell our MC leaders. I said, the only thing that is going to be hard for you as a missional community leader is having uh, 10 to 20 uh, adults and kids in your house week after week after week. They will destroy your furniture. It's true. Uh, I've had a mirror knocked off my uh, wall. I'm not going to name names. They're sitting over here. <laughs> Broken. Um, they those things are going to happen. It's hard. Hospitality is hard work. But when you're, doing, when you're showing true biblical hospitality, you are sacrificing. You're sacrificing your stuff. You're sacrificing your time. You're sacrificing uh, your food and money and resources and all sorts of things. But Peter is saying that is a visible act of love toward your brothers and sisters in Christ. And I would say hospitality is, is the forgotten gift of the church. It's the forgotten gift of the church. Not just here, I hope you feel welcome, and I hope this feels like a hospitable place. We try to do as best as we can in a school. But even just the Christian opening their home, uh, not just to the outsider, but to other Christians. So this, is, this is a gift that should be practiced by, by every Christian home. There's not somebody who says, well, uh, they're way better at hospitality than I am. I'm not good at it, so I'm not going to do it. That's not what Peter's saying. Peter's saying you must show hospitality as believers. So when you have someone in your, in your home, through this simple act of serving them a meal, engaging in conversation, hearing their story, I can guarantee that your love for that person grows. You will have a hard time trying to pick out what's wrong with them when you have them sit at your table. It's a mark of the Christian community. It's throughout the scriptures. Uh, In his book, The Hospitality Commands, Alexander Strach says, "Uh, unless we open the doors of our homes to one another, the reality of the local church as a close-knit family of loving brothers and sisters is only a theory Your home is the best tool you have to enhance loving Christian community, period. Your home. That's why God gave you a home, to open it to others. It's not your fortress, it's not your castle. It's to open it to others. So I would say, if you haven't done this yet, start to work your way through um, the, the church directory, which is on Slack for us right now, but working your way through the church directory and then inviting a family over once a week. And I can guarantee you, again, that your love for them will grow, but as you start having multiple people in your home, you'll get to know burdens, you'll get to know struggles, you'll get to know um, what, what brings them joy and what gets them excited. You'll understand how to interact with them. Your love for them will grow, but also your love for the church will grow as well because you will know its members. So finally, in verses 10 through 11, Peter shifts to the gifts that God has given believers by His grace, which we know as spiritual gifts, and we are to, to use these to serve one another. So look at verse, verse 10. Peter says that as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as, God, as good stewards of God's varied gifts grace so as 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 Christians we each have received a gift and we are to use it not to serve ourselves so I'm not to use my gift of preaching to build myself a platform that is not what I'm supposed to do I'm not to try to use it to make myself famous or to get popular or whatever it is I am to use my gift to serve you guys That's what I'm to use this gift for. And so every gift that you have is to be used to serve one another. And Peter is saying this is just another manifestation of love towards your brothers and sisters in Christ. And as you use your gift to serve one another, you are also bestowing upon them not not just your, your love for them, but God's grace through its use towards them. So I would encourage you by way of application here that if you don't know your gifts, the best way to know the gifts that God has given to you is not a spiritual gifts inventory test. Okay? And I know that's probably where some of us land. It's like some of you are probably already Googling it right now. That's not the best way to learn your gifts. I mean, they're helpful to an extent. The best way to learn your gifts is to begin to serve the church that God has placed you in. So others around you can then affirm your gifts and say, hey, I think you're really good at this. You do really well at, at, at welcoming people. You do really well at, at, at teaching in our seminars. I think God may, has, may have gifted you with a teaching gift. You do really good at that. Because God's, God's people are the best measuring tool for this. Not necessarily the spiritual gifts test, but, 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 but God's people affirming these things uh, in you. And this is the pattern of Scripture. This isn't just me telling you that, but this is the pattern of Scripture in the way of discovery of your gifts. Paul just lists them out. He just lists, he just lists all the gifts out. And where th- can I go through and just kind of reflect on those and to see how God has gifted us. So the New Testament scholar Tom Schreiner Uh, has a really helpful book on spiritual gifts that I encourage everybody to read. It's, It's really short, easy to read. But he says this, he says, "quote We will discover our gifts when we pour ourselves into the lives of other believers, when we get involved in the life of the body. Let me just read that again. We will discover our gifts when we pour ourselves into the lives of other believers, when we get involved in the life of the body. So that means, if you're not uh, involved in the life of the body, you probably don't know your gift, and therefore you are not using your gift, which means you are being disobedient to what God has called you to. So step one would be to pour yourself into the lives of other believers in your local church context. So wherever you might, you might be a member here. I encourage you to do that. But if you're not, if you're visiting and you have another church that you're a member of, begin to pour your life into that church. And from that, you will begin using your gifts without even knowing it. You may not even know what your gift is until somebody actually puts a name on it from the Bible. So Peter, he doesn't even go into detail here. He doesn't get into every one of the gifts. You can find those throughout the scriptures, and if you want a list of them, I can give them to you. But but he helpfully groups uh, spiritual gifts into two categories for us. Speaking gifts and serving gifts. Speaking gifts and serving gifts. Both are important, and both are needed in the local church. So, So... So remember, Peter's main goal here is not to say, hey, what's your spiritual gift? I'm just curious. That's not what Peter's goal is. Peter's goal is is to show his readers, because he's just assuming that they have some knowledge of what he's talking about here. But his goal here is to to show his readers how they are to love one another. And a major way you do this, Paul says this too, is to use your gifts to serve each other. To use your gifts to to build up the body of Christ, Paul says in Ephesians 4. So first, the speaking gifts. These speaking gifts would include, in Peter's time, I know there's a lot of debate on some of these gifts, so I'm just going to read what the Bible says, so calm down. Um, But Peter says uh, these gifts would include the gifts of apostleship, The gift of prophecy, the gift of teaching, the gift of speaking in tongues, and the gift of exhortation, which is preaching. And then the gift of service uh, would include giving. Some people are called to be more generous than others and to give of themselves. Uh, Leading, mercy, helps, healing, and the performing of miracles. And Peter says all of these gifts are to be used, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, into building up the body of Christ. That's what they're to be used for. Not to get a name for yourself, but to serve each other. So Paul says in Romans twelve six 6-7, where he's talking about the spiritual gifts, he says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So there's different members. So two things we can do to love each other well, Peter says. Show hospitality and use your gifts to serve one another. So Peter concludes this portion of his letter with a benediction that some believe this is probably where the letter was supposed to end, but I don't don't agree with that. I think Peter was just so caught up in the excitement of what God was calling his people to, what God was calling the church to, which he is calling us to now, Peter just had to stop and give this word of thanksgiving to God. Look at verse 11. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. So not only are you to uh, use your gifts um, to to love the body of Christ, but ultimately you are using your gifts for the glory of God. That That is every person in this room. Your ultimate end in life is the glory of God. Nothing else. It's the glory of God. That is the ultimate end of your life. And as we practice these simple acts in our life together, God is, God is glorified through Christ. Because the goal of the Christian life is that glory belongs to Him and not to us. And so this is how we are to live in this gray zone that we find ourselves in. That this, in this era where, where things are just up in the air. We cannot depend on anything really this point in time. No matter the chaos that that exists around us, we are to live for the glory of God. I'll close with just repeating Psalm 115, verse 1 that, that Josh read for us earlier. It says this, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Amen. Let's pray.